I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 2nd, 2018. Coming up, looking back to look forward. We review some of our favorite How on Earth stories presented in 2017 and ponder what they might lead to in 2018 and beyond. For this first How on Earth show of the new year, we look at some of the stories we have aired on How on Earth in 2017. These are not necessarily the top science news items of the year, but are staff picks of stories that we found interesting and thought-provoking, and what 2018 might have in store for those topics. So here's one. First of all, in 2018, this year, how can we do a better job at tracking pollution to its source? And how can we find cost-effective ways to eliminate some of these major causes of pollution? Well, one success story in 2017 came from Colorado State University. That year, scientists successfully mapped underground methane leaks leaks in urban areas, particularly from uh, utility companies. Uh, Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, as you likely know. A lot of methane leaks come from underground natural gas lines. A CSU team led by Joe Von Fischer has figured out how to use portable methane sniffers on Google Street View mapping cars. Maybe you've seen some of them. And they're used to pinpoint and measure methane leaks coming from buried gas lines throughout a city. Not only that, Partnering with Google and the Environmental Defense Fund, the CSU team helped develop ways to crunch huge amounts of data to display in easy-to-use Google Maps. You know how you can use Google Maps to find nearby restaurants? Well, these Google Maps are kind of like that, but for methane leaks. For more about this new technology, here's an excerpt from Shelley Schlender's 2017 story about how they figured out how to detect these methane leaks. We start by looking at the challenge of how to take millions of data points from Google Street Viewing cars and make them easily understandable for spotting leaks. Their team collected data for almost four years. The amount of data that's present here is more than 30 million points. You have to say that no citizen will look at those numbers and be impressed. So how did this team change geeky gobbledygook into something a regular person can understand. This data is collected from this Google Street View car, the sensors we um, put in Google Street, Google Street View car. And those data will be delivered to the one of the Google's storage systems. Colorado State University computer scientist Sangmi Pelikara says Google was very cooperative. They even provided us some computing powers as well. It works with Google's cloud storage and Google's BigQuery, Google's Fusion tables, and Google Drive, and Google Earth Engine as well. So this team used applications you could use. Cloud storage, BigQuery, Google Fusion's tables, Google Drive. Well, you could use them if you understood how to use them. Joe Von Fisher. And we have, thanks to Sangmi and Joe, a tool that allows us to uh, more quickly analyze that data and derive the real products, the nuggets from it. You know how you can use Google Maps to show you dots for all the restaurants near your location. The Google Maps for Joe Von Fisher showed dots for methane leaks. 
Von Fischer's team has color-coded the dots, yellow for small leaks, orange for medium, red for big, more than 60,000 liters of methane leak a day. According to the Environmental Defense Fund, a red dot means a leak that's as large as one car driving 9,000 miles every day. What about an activist? What if, for instance, someone says they're afraid of fracking and they want to map the countryside around their home? Is it possible that someday they could do that with this data? One of the products that comes from our work is that we have the chance to start to do something that we think of as democratizing information about environmental quality. What about places that don't have roads? Joe Von Fisher says it, it might even be possible to equip a drone for going into remote areas. Could a country such as Russia, which is known for its leaky methane pipes, could a country like Russia use this kind of application? There is certainly an incentive for any organization to reduce its leakage, presumably if they put a commodity in that pipe. And if they want to be able to sell the commodity on the other end, they'll have more if, it's, if the pipeline isn't as leaky. The bottom line is that one of the biggest groups that has leaky pipelines, the gas companies, now has a more affordable way to find the leaks that need to be fixed. Take the natural gas provider for the state of New Jersey. I think our favorite story with the gas companies is the New Jersey utility PSE&G. There was a utility who was poised to spend $900 million on pipeline repair. So we partnered with them and we mapped their utility service area and we identified parts of the service area that were the leakiest and we said, here are the parts that are emitting the most methane. If you were to replace this 8% of your pipeline, you would have a 30% reduction in your overall emissions. To me, that was a real victory, to be able to help the utility find which parts were leakiest and to make a cost-effective reduction in their overall emissions. Thanks to Shelley for that excerpt from her story about methane gas leaks and how to map them. Here in 2008, Shelley predicts that more affordable and portable pollution detectors will help scientists, industries, and citizens pinpoint sources of pollution and push to get the worst ones fixed. In this next feature, Beth Bennett interviewed Miriam Kalamian about her new book, Keto for Cancer, in which she describes in great detail the application and efficacy of a low-carb ketogenic diet as an effective therapy for fighting cancer. How does that high proportion of fat in the diet affect cancer cells? It's, uh, it's not that the high fat uh, affects cancer cells. Really what's going on by uh, limiting your intake of carbs down to 20 grams or less, sometimes 12 grams for, for something like brain cancer, um, what you're doing there is, uh, is signaling at the cellular level that there isn't enough glucose to maintain, um, uh, to maintain functions based on glucose intake. So the body makes this shift to ketosis. Well, first it makes a shift to fatty acid oxidation and then a further shift into ketosis. And uh, ketone bodies can supply um, up to 60, some people say 70% of the brain's energy needs. And that's the critical shift right there, the shift to ketone bodies. Once you're in ketosis, those ketone bodies um, also are not metabolized as readily by cancer cells. So that's how, um, by extension, you get the impact um, on uh, cancer. They're compromised to start with. Their function is compromised. Uh, you know, they're not highly efficient cells. 
um, and then you deprive them of the nutrients that they need, and they're further compromised. Uh, and then you hit them with another therapy because, like, uh, this diet should never be used uh, as a standalone. I should say, should seldom be used as a standalone therapy. There's usually some other kind of either conventional or alternative treatment going on simultaneous with it. Right. So I got to back up and clarify a few things because I know when I first started reading about this kind of diet. Um, some of the terms were a little confusing to me. So I think these are probably new terms to some of our listeners. So essentially what goes on in our cells is that carbs and glucose, which is the building blocks of carbs, is a preferred energy source. So the cancer cells love glucose. But if you starve them of it, then they have to, then all your other cells will turn to using fatty acids, which are the building blocks of fats and start burning those. So that's the first step. And then what's really interesting is that then those fatty acids get converted in your cells to these things called ketones, which are really wonderful sources of energy for most cells, except not cancer cells. Did I get that right, Miriam? Um, you know, yeah, that was a great job. I mean, this is a, it, the science can be tough, and I like to emphasize with people that they don't have to understand all the science to be able to, um, to do this diet. So I guess one of the comments I'd like to make is that you're, um, you, can, you are reducing glucose spikes and the associated insulin spikes, but you are keeping glucose at physiologically normal levels within the body. So you're, you're, it's not like you're going to go hypoglycemic um, at, as far as your body goes, uh, you're, you know, even if it looks that way. Thanks to Beth Bennett for that interview of Miriam Kalemian about her new book, Keto for Cancer. In the coming year, Beth says that we might see the ketogenic diet more frequently applied to other conditions that are hard to treat with conventional pharmaceuticals, especially Alzheimer's. Last January, I interviewed two Colorado investigators of FDA-approved clinical trials that have been testing the safety and efficacy of a psychedelic drug called MDMA. It's being tested as a treatment for post-traumatic stress syndrome, or PTSD. The drug is known in its adulterated form, very adulterated form, as ecstasy or molly. MDMA was used decades ago, actually, by some psychotherapist, and in fact it was legal until 1985. What intrigues me about this topic is that a staggeringly high number of people in the United States suffer from this anxiety disorder, and the controversial drug is showing promise for patients for whom other forms of treatments, from talk therapy to antidepressants, have proved unsuccessful. My two guests were Marcella Otalera, a licensed psychotherapist, and Bruce Poulter, a registered nurse. When I interviewed them, they were finishing a follow-up with subjects a year after their treatment, which combined three MDMA sessions with ongoing talk therapy over three to six months. So the first clip gives a sense of what PTSD looks like and how serious a public health and economic problem it is in the U.S. So I wanted to start with just an overview and a very personal view of PTSD and what it looks like how it manifests in the body and in the mind before we get into the trial itself. So, Marcela? Okay. Um, so, PTSD is, is kind of like being locked up with a traumatic event or events where your, all your perspective of the way you see life is from that caged place of that trauma. So, it's very difficult to learn new things, to be curious, and you're in constant fear of either having the memories of the event or trying to block them and avoid them. 
So your whole life um, revolves around it. And you have worked with several patients as a psychotherapist even well before this trial. Yes. Who have suffered from PTSD. Yes, I mostly work with PTSD patients. And Bruce Poulter, you as well have worked with patients even before the clinical trial, or you sort of jumped in with this clinical Mostly trial? Mostly jumped in with the clinical trial, mm-hmm. yes. And maybe a little more on some of the stats. Some of them are super alarming about those. I mentioned one in 12. I think that's just in the U.S. And mm-hmm. how, sort of what do the numbers look like, and how does it differ, say, with vets as opposed to others? Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., the generally agreed upon figure is eight percent of the population. So that's twenty-four million people. And that's at any given time. At any given time, mm-hmm. that's correct. And then when you look at vets, one of the you know from our ongoing uh, skirmishes in the world, um, the most inclusive number for a number of people who will develop PTSD as a result of being in war is uh, three quarters of a million. So that's. So the majority of PTSD is actually domestic, you know, civilian-related issues, um, you know, assaults between people who know each other, um, family violence, um, accidents, injuries. So in part how PTSD has become more uh, accepted within society is actually through, you know, our experiences with war. More accepted meaning destigmatized. Exactly. Uh-huh. exactly. Not normalized. No. Yeah. Correct. Uh-huh. Exactly. So, I mean, and, and actually then more compassion, you know, that people are not, as you said, not stigmatized. They're actually, mar- they're not being marginalized. They're actually being go- seen as this is what happens when people are exposed to the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And worst case scenario is... Suicide, right? Talk about that among vets and sort of general population, if you distinguish that way. So with vets right now, um, we have that it's between 20 and 22 vets take their own life every day. Every day. Every day. And so more vets die from suicide than they do in combat. Susan, I, I find those numbers really amazing that there were, there were more suicides than vets who died in combat. Yeah, no kidding. I was shocked at that, too, as if, as if the combat's not bad enough. Um, and I want to play another piece from that interview. And this one focuses on the data that the MDMA trials have produced so far. What have been the preliminary results that you've come up with, Bruce Bolter? So 20 out of 26 participants... what we call remitted or recovered from PTSD. So that's, what, 77%. So then that leaves six we have to look at. So three of them, their their scores in terms of the clinician-administered PTSD scale, which is the gold standard for PTSD rating, their, their score stayed identical throughout the study. And then the other three had at least a 30% improvement in their in their CAP scores. And just to flush out a bit, the yeah. treatment <clears throat> was psychotherapy with, what, three administrations of MDMA? Yes, three. three over? Um, over a period of uh, three to six months. Mm-hmm. And we stay, we don't give them MDMA and send them home. We stay with them the entire time. So we stay with them for eight hours when they take MDMA. And we do psychotherapy then and in between. 
And so about 70% of those have had lasting effects, or by the end of the trial, it showed they were in? So 77% at their one-year follow-up no longer met criteria for PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so, since unfortunately we're almost out of time, but what is the what's the next step, and then what's your what's your hope? So Marcella? our next step is uh, to do phase three, and phase three is multiple sites. So we hope to have uh, ten to twelve sites around the United States and a couple in other countries, and to see to continue the research for safety and efficacy. And um, if it continues the way it's going, we hope that um, MDMA will become a prescription medication for PTSD in 2021, is our hope. And Bruce Poulter, how about for you? Yes, and so we are really interested in who it doesn't work for as well as who it does work for, and really getting clear about what are the side effects and risks. And so far, they are very minimal. So, Susan, that, that's a very interesting study that was, this report was from, I believe, uh, early in 2017. So nearly a year later, what's the forecast for 2018? Yeah, so Marcela alluded to this. So it looks like starting this spring, they're going to begin the phase three trials. And that's to further confirm the findings of the phase two studies. Um, and, it, and I think she also alluded to the fact that MDMA could become legally available as early as 2021 for medical use to treat PTSD specifically. Um, and in fact, the FDA recently gave MDMA for PTSD what it calls a breakthrough therapy designation. And that gesture is a reflection of the agency's acknowledgement of the preliminary clinical evidence that MDMA actually demonstrates substantial improvement over other treatments. So essentially, the FDA will give a fast track reviewing data from the MDMA studies. That said, federal funding has been scarce. If it, there's really not been any at all. So this private funder, it's a nonprofit in California called MAPS. That's an acronym for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're really the funders. Um, and it turns out just a couple weeks ago, an anonymous philanthropist, someone who made millions investing in the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, donated a million to MAPS, to this nonprofit. Uh, that should go a long way toward advancing this research. And you can find more about MAPS and its efforts to have psychedelics legalized for therapeutic use on its website, and that's just maps.org. Perhaps the biggest story in astronomy and physics, also garnering a Nobel Prize this year, was the discovery and continued detections of gravitational waves. That topic made our best of list in 2016, but it continued to be one of the top stories with discoveries throughout 2017, highlighted by the recent observation of the merger of two neutron stars. That collision, creating what the scientists called a kilonova, not only generated gravity waves, but also light signals that were observed for the first time associated with a gravitational wave event. In 2018, I think we can expect to see more of these mergers and possibly other events that deform space-time, such as maybe pulsars and supernova. As scientists obtain more of these gravitational wave measurements over the coming years, it will enable them to probe new aspects of fundamental physics and the theory of general relativity. And then closer to home in our own solar system, we had an event that was much easier for people to observe. With glasses, that is. The solar eclipse of August 21st, 2017, that crossed the United States from coast to coast. As preparation for that event, we looked farther back 
to discuss a very special American eclipse, that of 1878. And that's with journalist author David Barron, who wrote the book American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. Here it is. There are lunar eclipses and there are solar eclipses. Lunar eclipses occur at night, at the time of the full moon, when occasionally the full moon passes through the shadow of the Earth and the moon goes dark. Actually, it turns sort of a blood red. A solar eclipse happens in the daytime when the moon is on the other side of the Earth and passes between the Earth and the sun. Now, many, many people have seen partial solar eclipses where the moon crosses in front of part of the sun, and you can only look at it safely if you use special eclipse glasses or use a pinhole projector. A total solar eclipse, however, is far rarer and far more dramatic. Only uh, any given point on Earth sees a total solar eclipse where the moon completely covers the sun about once every 400 years. The next one to come over Boulder will be in the year 2772. All right, so everyone mark that on your calendars. Right. So this one coming up August 21st of this year, first one in 99 years to cross the nation coast to coast, is a very, very big deal. So the eclipse of July 29th, 1878, crossed America's Wild West, went from Montana Territory down to Texas, at a time when total eclipses were, were very important to science. And a number of prominent scientists, astronomers and others, came west for the eclipse. The best known of them was Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, 31 years old, who had just invented the phonograph, comes west to study the eclipse. Thomas Edison, that little whippersnapper. Unfortunately, there won't be another total solar eclipse in 2018, but mark your calendars. The next great American eclipses will be on April 8, 2024 and August 12, 2045. For our local listeners, during that eclipse in 2045, the shadow will pass directly over Colorado. In other space news this year, the Cassini spacecraft, which had been studying the planet Saturn and its famous rings and many moons, ended its mission by plunging into Saturn's atmosphere. 2018 will bring many new exciting space missions. First, the OSIRIS-REx asteroid sample return mission arrives at asteroid Bennu in August 2018. And the SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket, after a delay of about five years, is finally slated to have its first launch this year, perhaps as early as this month. NASA's next Planet Hunter Telescope, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, is scheduled to launch in March in this year. The Parker Solar Probe will launch in July or August. This spacecraft will fly through the outer edges of the sun's atmosphere, skimming at a distance of about 4 million miles away from the solar surface to study the origins of the solar wind. The next mission to Mercury will launch in October. The spacecraft, called BepiColombo, is a joint mission of the European Space Agency and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. On November 26, the InSight mission will land a spacecraft on Mars to drill beneath the surface and probe the interior structure of Mars. Then, for those of you who want to plan next year's New Year's Eve party, at the end of 2018, the New Horizons spacecraft, which was the first spacecraft to fly by Pluto, will encounter its next target, a small, icy Kuiper Belt object in the distant reaches of the solar system. That flyby will be on New Year's Eve, with closest approach on January 1st, 2019, about half an hour after the ball drops in New York City's Times Square. A fitting celebration to the start of yet another year of exciting science in space and on Earth. 
And finally, we'd like to thank all of the How on Earth team who contributed to the show in 2017. My co-host today, Joel Parker. And my co-host today, Susan Moran. Thank you. And Shelley Schlender, Beth Bennett, Beth Bartell, Alejandra Soto, Chip Granditz, and the news team and all the staff at KGNU. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Well, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.